Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a strange day here in the capital, empty streets, uh, and uh, a very tentative people. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and today, as always, we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First, we're joined by Stephanie Dowley, head teacher of John Randall Primary School, a primary school located in Shropshire. Stephanie, hello. Hello. Thank you for making time out of your day to join us today. Uh, of course, uh, we uh, meet under the cloud of uh, COVID-19. How is your school coping uh, with this? Well, as always, the staff are magnificent and have risen to the challenge, uh, a challenge that has been changing day by day. Um, so we've, we've organised rotors on Friday that have changed already by Monday. Um, but we are, we are managing, we are coping. And we're very privileged to be supporting our colleagues in the National Health Service. And has your school population drastically reduced? Yes, yes. I have 240 children. I have 19 in today. Right. And do you feel that that's going to dwindle even further? Yes, I do. I do. The the advice that we're being given day by day is changing, but it's very clear that the government advice is stay at home. If you can, Mm -hmm. stay at home. So a lot of the 19 children are here because not because they're family key workers, but because they're vulnerable, because we serve an area of high deprivation. Um, but th- there is a, a point where that they need to be at home rather mm-hmm. than school. But I have to decide whether they're safer at home or at school. And that's quite a difficult decision to take. Well, let's touch on that for a second. So... Uh the deprivation element, um, are we talking about parents out of work and at home or uh, or some other sort of uh, circumstance? Yes, that's right. Um, there's high uh, unemployment in the area. Um, there's high mobility, which means families move around um, a lot. There's a lot of private rented accommodation, which isn't always the best, uh, in the best conditions for children to be in. Um so families find themselves uh, on benefits and they get stuck in a benefit trap. Um, and, and we are preschool meals of over 60%. So we, we have a, a considerable number of children with um, various barriers to learning um, because of their home conditions. Mm. Well, let's move back on to the subject of leadership. Um, as uh, long-time listeners of the program will expect, I like to start off these conversations with just simply asking you, what does the word leader mean to you? I've given this quite a bit of thought, actually. Uh, and I think that it is, for me, leadership is putting yourself out there and saying, "Have trust me and follow me. So it is about being at the front, not necessarily always leading from the front, but being at the front and letting other people have their opportunities, listening. Um, and I think it's really important to recognise that we're in the 21st century. So speaking as a, an educator and as a head of a school, it's really important that we start looking at different ways of educating our children. And so going back to what I was saying before about the area that we serve, you know, these children don't like sitting and listening. They're not used to it. So we have to think about other ways in which to engage them, which will serve 
the 21st century. Well, to play so devil's advocate there, haven't generations of children not particularly enjoyed being in classrooms? Exactly. And it's time to shake it up. I think it's absolutely time to shake it up. You know, who did actually enjoy sitting on your bottom for many hours listening to someone talking from the front? Not many people. Not many mm. people like to learn that way. So I say, get outside, you know, uh, learn through nature, learn through um, ex- exploration, learn through investigation. You really don't have to sit and listen anymore. It's all about doing. Now, does that set a, um, uh, of course, it would be very engaging for a learning uh, environment, but uh, does that then set these pupils up to when they go to work uh, in their later lives uh, to be expecting things to be uh, tailored around them as opposed to just cracking on and getting on with, uh, with work? Well, no, I disagree. I disagree. I think this, if you get people interested in the way they want to learn, they discover a lot more about themselves. And they can then give a lot more themselves to future employers. Mm. I think, again, the world of employment is going to change um, and, the, and the way in which we work. And I think if you've been recognized as having your own learning style and your preference, then you, you take an enormous amount of that into the workplace. You know, I'm, I'm trying to say to our children, one, you will do a job that hasn't even been invented yet. Two, you can do that job in lots of different ways. And it's my job to find out the way in which you, you learn best and which you, you do. Right. You know, I, I think this, um, I think it, it's just time to change. It's a, it's a very innovative uh, ide- ideology of education, actually. Um, now, when it comes to leading in an environment such as this, do you require different forms of leadership for each uh, group of stakeholders? Because, of course, you have staff, you have pupils, and you have parents. Do each group require their own sort of leadership? Uh, yes and no. In, in our school, when, when this is my second headship. And when I came to this school, they had um, a behaviour policy and a behaviour system that worked for the vast majority, but not for those children that you actually needed it to work for. And a lot of it was based on uh, punishment. You know, you stand here and you write lines and you, um, you do things like that. And it's clearly not working. So we, we changed it. We had a really good think about it and we changed it. And we have three rules. And the rules are be ready, be respectful and be safe. And we apply those rules to everyone in the school community. So I expect my staff to treat the children with respect. That is number one, because if they want to be respected, they have to have that in return. And it follows on to parents. I'm asking parents to make sure their children are ready for school. So mm. They have to get up early. They have to be fed. They have to have the uniform. So we say to the children, are you ready to learn? Do you have what you need? And again, we're Thinking back to what we were saying earlier about the workforce, that is what's making children ready for the workforce, having to think to themselves, do I have what I need? What else do I need to do? Respect is free. You give it freely. You receive it freely. And keeping safe, again, you're thinking about other people before yourself. You're thinking about your actions with regard to your own personal safety, to other people's safety, online safety. Um, and again, the community that we serve, unfortunately, our children are exposed to things we wouldn't want them to be exposed to. And so we have to make sure they understand how to keep safe. And that applies to the parents and it also applies to staff. So I would say that I hope I, we, as a school community, we treat everyone the same. But 
it, are there different ways of being a leader with those different sectors? Yes, there are. Sometimes I say, we're going to do this because I know it's good for school and it's my job to do it. And other times I sit back and I say, this is our problem. How should we tackle it? So it, it is a constantly moving and changing um, job and position. Mm. And it's very hard. It's very hard. <laughs> Now, uh, let's go back to the very beginning of your career when you first started out your working life. Were there any particular individuals who shaped the way that you lead today? Um, lots, actually, yes. I, I, was, um, I had a, well, a, a not the usual career path because I was at home with my children for a significant number of years. And then I thought, well, what can I do now? I want to retrain. So I, I did my degree um, in my early 30s and became a teacher at 35 mm. um, and I became a head at 45 so the people influenced me were were my family because my father was self-employed so it was, the work ethic was instilled mm-hmm. into me at a very young age um, I did a lot of reading and I, I the, um, John Jones and Alistair Smith had a great impact on me about leading through happiness leading change through creating um, an environment where people felt included, uh, that had a big effect on me. I think that people you meet as you go through your life, the way you're treated, that has an effect on you. And definitely as you go into school and then you are a teacher and you see leadership and you get closer to leadership and you make decisions about, I'd like to be like that, but not like that. <laughs> so th- those things are influencing you all the time. Now, unfortunately, our time together is drawing to its close. But before I let you go, what does next 12 months have in store uh, for John Randall Primary? Ooh. That, Difficult uh, question well, to answer at this time, no, I know. It's, it's fantastic. <laughs> Actually, it, it's a brilliant question. I, I, I couldn't thank you for a better question because what we're going to I talked previously about the 21st century. Um, coronavirus aside, what we are doing is we are um, employing our own chefs now in school so we're going to be making food part of the curriculum uh, right the way through so we're going to be having a huge polytunnel we're going to be growing as much of our own produce as possible Um, every classroom is having a a garden base on it we are employing a curriculum chef who will advise teachers so when they're doing topics um, such as Egyptians we've been making Egyptian food and sourcing uh, grains and pulses and the children have been making food from scratch. Now, we're doing that for several reasons. One, because we want to make the curriculum exciting and real for children. Again, mm. your point about what skills are we giving them for life while we're teaching them to cook. We're going to have our own curriculum kitchen where we're going to invite parents and families um, to cook a meal for a week. Um, so we're going to have it through the curriculum. Uh, we're going to creating our own lunches that are based on exciting food for the children. Um, and we're going to be growing our own produce and hopefully selling it as well. Uh, we're going to get a pizza oven in so that we can um, create that, again, that family uh, dining experience. But also it's a little bit of um, commerce for the children so we can sell the pizzas. Um, and we're going to be work- working more closely with food providers, um, with the children, so that they can actually see where food comes from, which, again, given the coronavirus and the fact that we're having to stay in, if your your meals are very much takeaway food, 
then you're going to have to stop learning to cook very fast. Mm. Well, so it's exciting. It it's sounds exciting. like a very exciting time for John Randall Primary School. And Stephanie, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing this with you. I hope that you come back on the program again when this is all over. We can have a, a further conversation about these very exciting plans. Uh, Stephanie, thank you. That would be great. Thank you very much. That was Stephanie Dowley, head teacher of John Randall Primary School. And now, if you haven't heard it before, is Jonathan White's exclusive interview with Lord Blunkett. Uh, we're joined uh, today by uh, David Blunkett, Lord Blunkett, former Home Secretary, former Education Secretary. David, thank you very much for joining us today. You're very welcome. Uh, it's always a pleasure. But uh, since we are talking around the theme of leadership, it would be a remiss of me if we didn't start with the leadership election going on in the Labour Party. Apart from, I'm sure you're delighted that a certain someone is leaving a post. What are your thoughts on it so far? Well, I think the... Party membership have got to make a very clear decision. Uh, are they in, in the stands watching or are they on the pitch playing? And if they want to play, then the two candidates that are in for the future are Lisa Nandy and Keir Starmer. I'm personally backing Lisa because I think she's a brave woman with a tremendous amount to give. She's got really good, positive ideas. I like them because they're about building from the community rather than command and control from the centre. They're about a new form of social democracy and socialism rather than trying to replicate a failed past. And she could reach out to people that others can't. So I'm, I'm giving her my backing. I think Keir Starmer is very professional, mm. very able, and presents extremely well. And I, I hope that one of those two... Uh, actually come through in the election on the 4th of April. Uh, there has been a lot of criticism, especially from uh, four uh, candidates a little further left um, than them, who've criticised even the last Labour uh, uh, government as being part of 40 years of Thatcherism. Yes, I think it's really unfortunate, uh, particularly when new MPs come in having seen large swathes of their colleagues lose their seat, uh, to roll up the 13 years of Labour government with everything that I'm so proud of. I mean, I, we, we were not neoliberals or anything like it. We were able, in the first 10 years certainly, uh, which I played a part in, to be able to turn the economy around, to invest in health and education, to be able to transform people's aspirations and their hopes for the, the future. And that included ensuring people got the minimum wage, which we never had before, Sure start to nurture youngsters from the most moment they were born, transformation in the quality of education. And all these things actually add up to helping people to improve and change their lives for the better. And anyone who thinks that's not good and that isn't a government to be proud of needs to answer the question, what chivalet is it that you would want that would actually have done more to change those lives? I can think of two or three myself in terms mm. of uh, dramatically taking on uh, inequality, although half a million children were taken out of poverty in those years. I can think of being even tougher on crime, even though I was dubbed as one of the tougher home secretaries because the people that I cared about most were, on the whole, not exclusively, but mainly the victims of crime. I can think about taking on the very, very rapidly growing transnational power 
of the big tech, tech companies, which we still need to work through in terms of how we do that from a, a single nation just off the coast of Europe, and how we work internationally without getting caught up in wars we don't want to be involved in, but how, how are we international in a way that ensures that we play our part in making a better life for humanity as a whole rather than disengaging and becoming alien from the rest of the world? Th those are big questions for the social democratic left, particularly with artificial intelligence and robotics changing the world of work forever, I think, in the next 20 years. Uh, an ageing population. Labour got 18% of the over 65 vote in the general election. Just 18%. It's staggeringly... It's extraordinary. Staggeringly bad. Um, and and climate change, which we all know, is going to be either a big gain or a terrific political trauma. We've got to take people with us. No matter uh, which political party it is, the changes that will occur in this decade especially will determine their future ideologies, certainly. And sp speaking of your time... Uh, as Home Section in government. Um, you worked with so many different individuals of all political stripes and none at all. Is there someone, and on the theme of leadership, that stands out to you that embodies some of those qualities you described earlier? Yes, I mean, I, it's on the theme of bottom-up, it was some of the most inspiring uh, head teachers and classroom teachers who, in really, really difficult circumstances, were actually transforming the life chances of children. By inspiring those children to want to learn, to, if you like, lighting a candle inside them, uh, giving them a, a, a window on the world, which created an inquiring mind and an understanding that the world was their oyster, that they could do things with support. My, my philosophy has always been mutuality and reciprocity. We, we need mutuality to support each other. We need reciprocity in terms of understanding that we don't just take, we, we give a lot as well. And I suppose that really comes down to uh, if you're prepared to do something for yourself, we're prepared to do something to help you. And that's fundamentally in education, but it is in all sorts of walks of life as well. So you can have innovation, you can have entrepreneurship and creativity in, in business, you can have the way in which people turn things around for themselves. Small businesses have done that, the contribution to... Uh, new ways of doing things, of thinking differently about our economy. Th those are all grit to the mill. Those are the things we need to do. And we can do them together. It's not that you're on the side of the devil if you're an entrepreneur or you're on the side of the angels if you work in public services. We, we are mm. dependent on each other. Oh, you can't have one without the other. Yes. Um, and I think to coin a term... Uh, uh, extraordinary, ordinary people, and especially when it comes to giving your answer, David to uh, teachers, to carers, people that honestly don't get the recognition they deserve on a day-to-day -day basis. And without them, half of society wouldn't function. I completely. I, I call it civil society, which functions even when government isn't functioning. It's, what, it's the glue that holds things together. It's people working and living and having their being together and recognising that they are dependent on each other. I, I've obviously met incredibly inspiring leaders... In a different vein, I was very fortunate to have met Nelson Mandela three times. Uh, I met Bill Clinton a number of times, both of whom, in very, very different ways, were inspiring leaders. I've met people in leadership positions who couldn't take a decision to save their lives. Uh, Tony Blair famously said in the, his conference speech 
the year before he stood down as Prime Minister. And I, I knew exactly what he meant. He said the worst ministers are those who won't take decisions. And anyone in a leadership role needs to, A, know why they're there, what they intend to do with the uh, authority mm. that goes with being a leader and a manager, and then how to draw people in as a team to be able to implement it so that it's a team approach. It's not someone out on a white charger. It's someone who can mobilise, motivate, provide incentives for people to feel that they're part of the solution as well. Uh, and I think whether it's politics, whether it's business, whether it's sport, it's exactly those qualities that you need to succeed in any of them. Yes, it is. And if people recognise that and they have a clear idea themselves, they, they have and build, because you can't build, leadership qualities, they know how to manage their own time and their own emotions because we all, from time to time, feel like really losing our temper and... I don't pretend for a minute over the years <laughs> that, that I haven't. How, how to control your own feelings and emotion and how to bring the best out in other people's. How, how you work out that people who are really good don't threaten you, they compliment you. People who have complementary skills to you are really valuable. And I suppose the ability to listen, not just for its own sake, mm. but to listen because you are conglomerating, I suppose you would call it plagiarising, thoughts, ideas, ways forward from everyone around you. I often think that um, football managers wouldn't do too bad a job if they actually talked to the fans after the game. Well, everyone knows, <laughs> uh, David, you know, you're a big Sheffield Wednesday fan. It I know. can't be easy having to hear the it, praise of Chris Wilder and Sheffield United every week after no, week. No, it isn't, although it's damn good for Sheffield, so I'm being a bit magnanimous at the moment That's very good about Sheffield United in the Premier League because it, it, it does change. It lifts the image of the city internationally. If you're Not just because it's Sheffield United, but because if you're playing Liverpool uh, and you're playing Man City then that's a global audience. You're immediately beamed across the world. So that's good. I, I, I could cry sometimes. We can, we can beat uh, Brighton, Premier League side, in the FA Cup at Brighton. We can beat Leeds at Leeds. I was there when we beat them 2-0 in January. And then you can lose 5-0. And then you lose 5-0 at home to Blackburn and half the fans were out of the ground by, by half-time. What, what would a manager blanket say in the situation? I, I would have asked myself a very simple question. What went wrong with motivating those players so that when they came out on the field, they walked instead of ran? They didn't have any of the passion they'd had the week before at Leeds. They showed no drive and incentive to take hold of the game. What, what went wrong with the same players who'd played very well the week previously and if you can answer that question and there may have something may have happened who knows something during the morning before the game started something may have gone sour you get the answer to that question and you then start to ensure that we never never do this again yeah, well i'm a chelsea fan so i'm beginning to feel your pain at the minute um <laughs> but i would like to pick up on another point you just made actually david about choosing a strong team people that compliment you a lot of criticism that uh, Theresa May got as Prime Minister was that she tended not to pick perhaps the more ambitious, the more uh, 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 people uh, uh, ministers that might well challenge her. One of Boris Johnson's, for all his faults, uh, 
he has been said in the past, he's a man that picks people that are good at their briefs. Do you agree with that? Well, I'll reserve judgment on that until I see the outcome of the reshuffle, which, as we record this podcast, has not yet happened. Mm. And I imagine, I, I would be very surprised if he didn't have quite a brutal reshuffle, not just to get people in who he likes, but people who are going to be really sparky and able and clear at doing the job because you can have all the best ideas in the world you can pronounce on what you're going to do but if you haven't got leaders in those departments prepared to do it if they're just toadies by the way and there is a tendency a new mm. prime minister large majority got to be very careful that you don't pick people because you're receiving the echo of your own voice uh, when you're speaking to them but get able people in i, I, I won't comment on some of the less able, but there are <laughs> clearly in the cabinet as I speak at the moment people who are really just not up to it. I mean, incidentally, anyone who won't be cross-examined by decent journalists on the BBC, changed their minds recently about mm. Sky, <clears throat> isn't worth their salt. If, but part of being cross-questioned is to demonstrate to yourself that you've got a grasp of your brief that you believe in it and that you can persuade people of it. And if you can't do that under real cross-examination rather than sitting on the sofa for mm. a, a, an easy morning television programme, get out of the business. You know, don't, don't do Without it. Without a doubt. Yeah. Uh, that's, and also, I should add, that is how uh, all Stripes earn that respect in the first place. But there is a question, isn't I'm there? I'm trying to answer the questions. That's, that's <laughs> what I always try to answer the or questions. Or be very good at avoiding them. Either way. Um, oh, well, the, the way of avoiding them is to take it head on and say, I'm, I'm not going to answer that question. Explain why. Yeah, quite. Uh, <laughs> the, um, and I think one of the great things about uh, the Lise Castle especially is that um, it takes and talks to people again, from all different backgrounds, leading something very different, whether it's a charity, whether it's a business, whether it's in politics. There comes points, though, and David, you must have experienced this, whether it's leading Sheffield City Council or as Home Secretary. When people are looking at you for leadership, where do you get your strength from? I think there's something inside all of us. There's a tenacity, there's a, an ambition, there's a desire to get things done, to make a difference inside you. Whether you're in public service, the charities or you're driving a business that actually says this is why I get up in the morning so you've got to have something internal to yourself the the second is the satisfaction you get back because you do from seeing things change for the better you you can take pride without being egotistical there's nothing wrong with being proud of what you do and to want to do it even better and that's why you need both Sharp minds around you, in my case it was special advisors as, as well as ministers, I pretty well picked my ministers. Sometimes Tony asked me to take people who I was a little bit iffy about and we had to meld people into the team. I was able to pick all my own special advisors and that really did make a difference. Mm. But in, in the end, you've got to like what you're doing. I mean, the, the, the people who are un, unhappy in their skin, they... they it's very difficult to perform if you're in the wrong business or in the wrong department of a business or if you're really hating teaching or in politics, you, you're just in the wrong department. I was very lucky because education 
and employment were my first loves in terms of what I wanted to do, and I got the job for four years. I'd then come to the conclusion that there were really big challenges for us. It turned out even bigger than I expected with the attack on the World Trade Center mm. three months after I became Home Secretary. But the big challenges of security, of reducing crime, of dealing with the development of positive citizenship, which also had a readover in terms of immigration, the kind of things that change people's lives either for the better or the worse. And you don't get everything right. That's the other thing you've got to recognise, which is why being part of a broader team, being able to take criticism but not always accept it <laughs> because otherwise you blow with the wind, that, that, that's the, the measure. And I think if we can share those traits, those experiences, those different elements through the Leadership Council, if we can get people from very, very different leadership managerial roles and delivery roles to actually be able to share that experience, everyone will gain something from it because that dialogue will inform, it will avoid people reinventing the wheel, it will take people a lot further than the, the niche, for good or ill, the niche that they're in at the moment. Um, David, the very uh, in a couple of minutes we have left, um, I will be mean and put you on the spot and ask you for predictions perhaps in three things. What will happen in the Labour leadership contest? How will the next few months go for the government after Brexit, uh, well, after we leave the European Union on the 31st of January? And where will Sheffield Wednesday finish in the league? Lord above. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure which is the most difficult of those <laughs> questions. I, I've already in, indicated where my support is for the, the Labour leadership. If we take it at the end of January 2020... Keir Starmer has clearly got a got off to a very very um, strong start. I think, however, it will be very much down to who can reach those parts of the Labour Party membership that came in on the back of Jeremy Corbyn's election in 2015 to that post, who can be persuaded that what they want to see and the change, the big changes they'd like to enact can only be brought about in any form if we win and we win back the people the tragic loss of people on our side uh, mm. in December 2019 uh, and that that's got to be Lisa Nandi or, or Kia on on the, um, the the next few months I think that the government will probably do quite well I I, I think that there are real dangers ahead in just having 11 months to negotiate trade deals, especially with bellicose pronouncements about we're not going to have alignment, as though alignment in itself is a bad thing when some of it will be very good. So I think there are dangers, but I think there's quite a bit of momentum going with the government at the moment, and that will be reflected in relationships in doing deals in Europe and facing outwards to the rest of the world. Sheffield Wednesday, God help me. I mean, you know, how is it that two of the things that are most important to me, other than my f family and loved ones, is football and, and politics? I think Sheffield Wednesday will be hard-pressed now to get into the playoffs. If we do, I think we could pull it off. But I am really reluctant 
And I think on that prediction, your reputation will be judged. Lord Blanket, thank you very much for joining us God today. God bless you, Jonathan. <laughs> this has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence and leadership with us. I have been your host, Matthew O'Neill. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, other guests, or any other person therein associated.